Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're talking about day nine of Epic versus Apple, the trial of at least the month of May in 2021. If you haven't been following this series, we've got two playlists for you. An antitrust Epic goes all the way back to the beginning when Epic dropped its prices, added a direct payment option on iOS and on Android and started this whole thing up last fall. And for those of you that just like the testimony, the trial videos, we have what will be after the conclusion of this video, a 10 video playlist that goes over all of the days of testimony together with a brief summary of what you need to know in order to understand what's happening at trial at the very top end of that playlist. So please do check out either of those if you are interested. And with that, we can start talking about day nine of live tweets of the testimony from yesterday. And this again comes from Ms. Addie Robertson at The Verge, who in my opinion is doing the very best job of live tweeting all of this. And as always, we thank the journalists that are really following this very closely when we're not able to uh, during our legal work day. There hasn't been any documents that were leaked out. There haven't been any new kind of evolutions of things behind the scenes. So we're just gonna talk about testimony in today's video. Day nine of Epic versus Apple starts a little after 11. Apple's expert witness, Lauren Hitt, is returning. Then the ball's back in Epic's court with antitrust expert Michael Craig and a return of economist David Evans, who kicked off the battle of the experts a few days ago. Now, we won't actually see David Evans in today's testimony because Mr. Craig runs a little bit long. The whole day is only Hitt and Craig, but that's okay because they both have interesting things to say. And we've got one Apple witness and one epic witness. So let's continue with Mr. Hitt. Lauren Hitt is back on the stand. We're recapping his testimony yesterday, which covered his analysis of the growth in game transactions on the App Store. Loosely speaking, Hitt made a case yesterday that Apple's policies and pricing showed no evidence of Apple engaging in anti-competitive conduct on the App Store, and he analyzed the output and quality of transactions on the store. So this is an Apple expert, as we talked about yesterday, who main contention is that Apple has been wildly successful. There's a huge number of additional apps on the store in a period of time from the start of the app store that Apple really hasn't changed the restrictions at issue in this case. A number of you came into my comments yesterday and said, Rick, how can you keep saying that Apple doesn't change its policies when they do at every single new iteration of the guidelines and changing in app review policies, all these various things? And that's accurate. What I mean to say is when they Don't change the restriction on the app store when they don't change the 30% cut, except to reduce it in certain instances, when they don't change the requirement that you use their in-app payment processing service from all the way back when they started the app store. That is what's at issue in this case, and that is what hasn't changed. Yes, they keep adding new rules about streaming apps and various other things that I think would make a better case against Apple from Microsoft and NVIDIA, as I have said, but On its core, they haven't changed the baseline fundamental presumptions of how they operate their iOS ecosystem, the app store and in-app payment processing. That has been around since day one and that's presenting a problem for Epic and it will pop up again today in that their own experts say that Apple was fine for some period of time from when they started the app store until some period of time when they became monopolists, but Apple didn't change those policies that are at issue in this case And so Epic has to make the claim that it became illegal and what Apple should have to do now is something that essentially accrued during the period of time where they were otherwise operating legally and operating a successful business. So that is what hasn't changed. That's 
Mr. Hit's presumption here is that that successfulness of the App Store and the iOS ecosystem is in and of itself indicative of successful competition. Hit says that commissions on the App Store have been steadily rising in the aggregate on a dollar basis, but not because Apple is taking a greater cut. Instead, what is driving this is that developers have been able to charge higher prices for in-game purchases over time. This is a good thing. Developers are creating more value for consumers and they're able to charge more as a result. So developers make more and Apple makes more without raising its commission percentage, says Hit. A rising tide raises all ships, or as we've said in this space, a percentage-based commission makes a lot of sense for a relationship like this in business terms because both sides are incentivized to make as much money as possible because Apple makes money when the developer makes money and the developer makes money when the developer makes money, right? Now, you could flip this around on its head when we're talking about consumer welfare. If they're charging more, it's easy enough for an economist to say, well, that's because there's more value being created. And certainly with someone with my background that has an economics degree and talks about these things on a value proposition and freedom of contract in a commercial legal sense and that kind of thing, I tend to overall agree with the concept that when you exchange money for goods, services, or otherwise, whether physical or digital, you presumably value those goods or services at more than the dollars that you're spending. And overall, trade is good and everybody's value is increased and that's a good thing. But you could say, hey, okay, developers are able to charge more because of that lock-in problem that Epic has said. And then they're not just locking in developers, they're locking in users. And once that happens, developers in and of themselves are potentially a kind of monopolist because this is where you're locked in in your system. And if you want to play our game, it's going to be over here. And now suddenly $5 is $10. And you get into this weird recursive analysis. Is value being created? Is value being sucked up by Apple? Or is it being sucked up by developers? Obviously, Epic doesn't want to make that secondary fight. But when you start having this testimony, and we'll see this flip around again when Epic's expert comes up to bat, We have all of these kind of competing, conflating interests as to what's even happening in this marketplace. And that's what makes these cases so hard. And to be honest, so interesting. Lawyer asks, did Apple raise its prices after it allegedly gained a monopoly, a date Epic's witnesses have put around 2010? Hit, no. Apple's commissions have been steadily declining throughout. Judge gets him to confirm this applies to both initial and in-app purchases. Hit moves on to whether we've seen a quality decrease in the App Store, another epic contention. One argument against it, Hit says, is the increased money devs make. They've been able to raise their prices because consumers perceive the value in what they're offering. Again, higher prices for developers, higher prices for Apple means that more consumers are willing to pay that amount. It's a net positive, according to this economic expert. But what's important here is, again, they try to hit Epic on this date uncertain concept. And I think it's a winner for them. I think it's a useful attack point that I I would believe the judge will probably bring up in her opinion at the end of the day. We're always guessing and speculating on that. But as I said before, as I said before in this series, this Epic theory that what was legal becomes illegal at some date that only a third party can know is a problem. And because Apple didn't change its procedure, because Apple didn't raise it to 35% or 40% or 50% as a commission, Epic doesn't have that silver bullet to go and say, look, Apple used its monopoly power illegally to extract this monopoly value. When Apple says, we've just been humming along doing what we've always done, how is that hurting anybody? You said it was legal through some date. How did it suddenly become illegal to do that very same thing? And I think ultimately that's going to be a very effective rhetorical device for Apple. Hit highlights game streaming services 
including Microsoft's xCloud and NVIDIA's GeForce Now, which we heard about last week, as examples of innovation that iOS has made possible. It's a little odd, given that both Microsoft and NVIDIA testified about Apple rejecting their apps. It is very odd, Ms. Robertson, and it's a little bit of a side journey that is unexpected for this particular witness. Why in the world, if you're Apple, would you deliberately lead your witness down the road of talking about xCloud and GeForce Now, which in my opinion are by far your weakest points of the app review guidelines and look very much like you're attacking these specific companies in order to cover your own gaming revenue. It's very interesting. And you'll see this come back up on cross-examination, but certainly the existence of mobile phones and the technology that are in those phones is helpful to those kinds of things, xCloud and GeForce Now working and getting games in people's pockets. But that does presume that your iOS control allows them to make those applications and not just kick them out to the browser. Maybe this witness thinks the browser is just fine. Maybe the browser is just fine for now. Uh, But certainly it's a weird, weird kind of side journey to take in this testimony. Judge Rogers asks, even if it's free to download, unless there's cross-platform or cross-wallet play in games, then if you haven't used all the money in your wallet on an app in an iOS device, then you'd better use it before you switch to an Android device, right? This is talking about friction and switching. Hit agrees, but he says that's the call of the developer, i.e. they could let you transfer your wallet to a different platform. Earlier in the trial, Apple pointed out that some game consoles actually do control these choices. Sony stops Epic from letting you transfer V-Bucks across platform and in fact charges for crossplay in and of itself. Apple doesn't do this. And this is an interesting kind of side journey. This will pop up again and again in this video today, in this testimony today, because one of the things that's at issue here is this friction that Epic wants to say it's too frictionful to kick people out of the app, to send them over to our browser, to ask them to buy V-Bucks over there. And this applies to all sorts of apps and games and things in the app store. And the judge has already expressed certain concerns about it with respect to Fortnite, which says, well, maybe kids should have some friction. But separating out that question in and of itself is this notion that when you get to the browser, when you make these determinations of what wallet should be cross-platform or, or cross-available for players, it's up to the developers. It's up to working with other platform holders. And in each case of this particular testimony and in the testimony prior in this litigation, it always looks like the console manufacturers are acting by far with the highest walls of their walled garden. Sony in particular, right? Sony, no cross movement of wallets. We're going to charge you for cross play. You're still going to owe us 30%. And it continues to be this open question in this litigation that says, well, why are you fighting mobile when you could be fighting consoles? And this will pop up again in Epic's experts' own testimony, as we will see as part of this video. But it is still worth noting that that's the call of parties that are outside the iOS. Apple was allowing this stuff through its wallets. We'll also see this with respect to friction in web browsers, where ultimately the developer slash publisher is deciding how frictionful the actual user experience is on those browsers. And that isn't really something that should be held against Apple or Microsoft or Sony or Nintendo because they're not in charge of figuring out how you should get V-Bucks to consumers. Which brings up Tim Sweeney's testimony from earlier in this case, where he said basically that Epic and their browser wasn't offering V-Bucks or at least not easily so because it wasn't something they thought consumers or the consumer experience warranted, which is another piece of evidence kind of acting against whether or not iOS itself and Apple is doing anything wrong. Looking now at the other side of the market, why game developers pick the platforms they do? 
Apple's lawyer asks if developers just effectively need to build for the widest possible audience. This is a claim that Epic has made. No, Hit says. Ninantics games like Pokemon Go are pretty much mobile exclusive. Judge, well, it'd be hard to play Pokemon Go on a console. Hit, that's true, but it's always a choice. So Ninantic could have chosen to build a different kind of Pokemon game that worked on both consoles and mobile. Technology may be an important part of that choice for some developers, less so for others. Ninantic is pretty high on the caring about technology side. Yeah, and this presents another interesting kind of side journey that Epic can't really bring. But is there a potential better case against Apple and iOS for mobile applications, maybe just games, but applications in general that are specifically using some bit of mobile technology, that they have a better case because their entire model, their ecosystem couldn't function without that technology. And so they're much more locked in than somebody making Fortnite. One of the problems with Epic's case, of course, is that you're going to get a lot of expertise about how Fortnite uh, doesn't exactly transfer over, that games and apps don't exactly transfer over between consoles and mobile and PC and whatnot. But Fortnite in and of itself does. Fortnite is pretty much the same across all these various models. You have different kind of inputs and things. And no, I personally wouldn't like to play a game like that very much on my phone, but that application still exists in pretty much the same format across all of these various kind of platforms. So that's also kind of an interesting side journey and whether Ninantic and the Ninantics of the world could have a better case than Epic. Hit then shows a chart of how iOS Fortnite players spend money. Many people don't play anything and a lot of people purchase on other platforms. And I think this is very interesting just for those of you that are interested in how this all kind of plays out in terms of gaming. He's got a figure here for Fortnite purchases through iOS who says there's no purchases for three quarters of the players that play Fortnite through iOS. No purchases at all. 15% have some purchases of something in Fortnite, Battle Pass, what have you, but it's not on the phone. 5% only buy things through the phone and about 3% purchase everywhere. They got wallets everywhere. They're buying Fortnite bucks everywhere. They're buying it on the phone. They're buying it elsewhere. And so most of these people that are playing it on the phone aren't buying anything because in general, when you talk about free-to-play games, most people aren't buying anything on any platform. Hit brings up for approximately the billionth time in this trial, the fact that you can buy V-Bucks on a web browser. Side note from Ms. Robertson here, upon clicking around Epic's website for V-Bucks buying info, the process honestly seems either difficult to find or somewhat convoluted. And this will come up again, as I said in this testimony, but honestly, that's not Apple's problem. If you could have a giant neon light that says buy V-Bucks here and you put it on the front of your browser, that's absolutely fine with Apple. That's not within Apple's control. If you made it difficult to buy on your website, whether you're Fortnite here with Epic, as we will see, whether you're King and Activision with Candy Crush and Clash Royale and things like that, that's really up to the publisher and the developer to make it as friction-free as possible. And you can't just claim from a legal perspective that there's a lot of friction because we made our browser really difficult to navigate. That's not Apple's problem. Another example of whether Fortnite players switch between platforms, Hit ran an analysis concluding that Fortnite launching on the Switch drew people away from iOS. And he takes this number here. And if we go and we look at the chart, the green line is supposed to be all iOS users that accessed Fortnite except for Switch users. Everybody that was on iOS that didn't also get on Switch. And then the blue line is users that access Fortnite on both. And showing that effectively when it launched on Switch, this line came together and iOS got less money than 
it would have if Switch hadn't launched. That's the argument that Hit is making. We will see that rebutted with our pointing Spider-Man, as shown in the thumbnail by Epic's expert later on in the testimony. But it is interesting to, to watch these kinds of things. It's also interesting to see this line overall go down. And you do wonder exactly what the state of Fortnite is, you know, here in spring of 2021 on an overall basis, because that's an interesting part of the story as well. We heard a lot about friction this week, lawyer says. Note Sweeney's testimony saying in-app purchases can't be sufficiently replaced by out-of-app ones like a web browser purchase. Was that testimony consistent with what you've heard from other app developers? Now, before we break into this, it's also important to note that Epic is currently suing Google and their Android operating system. And one of the bases for that is friction. So when you're kind of holding concurrent litigations, Sweeney and Epic in general is being very careful to not say something in this court case that could potentially be used against it in the Google and Android court case. And because that one is really focused on, well, Google adds all this friction to side loading, adds all these warning bars, does all these various things that while allowed, make it difficult for the developer to make money on that platform. They continue to kind of hit that here with respect to Apple, even though Apple doesn't have quite the same impact on whether or not you can do something on their app store as Epic's arguments against Android, because they don't allow side loading at all. So there's no warnings. And now we're talking about friction between going from an app over to a browser in kind of a different way than that Google case is going to be based on. Hit gently disagrees with the premise that friction is very difficult, sending people out to browsers. Other developers say that they can get consumers to participate on multiple platforms, he says. Hit is skeptical of the entire argument that Apple is forcing developers to add friction. Maybe we've just gotten habituated to the fact that things are easy to do, he says, but compared to the physical world, he says we're talking about tiny delays. Hit compares leaving an app and spending a minute or two in a web browser to having to check a convenience store price and then walk across the street to find a cheaper option. I'd say the types of frictions we're talking about here that are supposedly insurmountable seem very small compared to the ones you'd see in the real world, such as getting in your car and driving to go get a game or piece of software as you would have had to do really very recently in the history of mankind. So I do think that there is some truth to what he says, which is that we have gotten to a point where we're talking about infinitesimally small amounts of friction, but it is friction. There is no doubt that Epic could, if it wanted to, bring up internal reports that say, if we add one click between you and V-Bucks, we lose X amount of dollars. That our job is to get you somewhat impulsively, depending on how you feel about free-to-play games and Epic and all these other purveyors of this type of good, to get you to impulsively spend that $5 for that wizard costume before you think about it too hard. And if you have to go out to a web browser and figure out where to go on the Epic Game Store, you have all this time for it to go, you know, I don't actually need a wizard costume. And that's not great for Epic, who wants your money, but it might not be the worst thing in the world, as the judge says. Now, should the law enforce those kinds of things? I would say no, but it's a very interesting part of the conversation. Apple's lawyer takes a dig at Epic's witness testimony from a couple days ago, asks Hit to confirm that the standard for friction is not whether you can do this with a baby on your shoulder, correct? And Hit wisely demurs. I wouldn't even go there. And then we get into Hit's cross-examination. Epic's lawyers are talking about game streaming services, xCloud, GeForce Now, etc. No real surprise since they brought it up themselves. You agree that those streaming services are not available to be native apps on iOS, correct? Well, that's correct, Hit says. Lawyer trying to draw a comparison with what the effects would be if Netflix was kicked off the app store. Hit isn't biting, and we're moving on. And as you've seen throughout this battle of the experts, 
paid witnesses that do this on a regular basis that are used to being cross-examined react pretty differently from those that are in the business of operating things like the vice president of Xbox and Tim Sweeney that respond a little bit more to cross-examination. Experts know to basically just shut it down. Hey, I'm not going to opine as to what hypothetically might happen to Netflix if they were forced into a browser solution because I have no idea and I'm not an expert in future prognostication. And then you move on, right? And and that's still a fair kind of analysis to drum out of them from Epic's lawyers. The Netflix GeForce Now xCloud question is a good line of attack for Epic. It's not terribly useful to Epic's actual standing. It would be more useful if they were Microsoft or NVIDIA themselves, but it is useful to continue to highlight that there are areas where Apple's rules seem to be at least a bit arbitrary and a little bit anti-competitive and protective if we're being kind of generous. And Epic continues to highlight those because that's a good thing to mark for the court. Epic's lawyer compares App Store to patent monopolies where inventors can extract rents, but only for a limited time until the patent runs out, right? Intellectual property law, one of the things we talk about in virtual legality a lot has time limiters on it. And you get to go and you get to mandate that people pay you for the use of your patents, unless you make things like vaccines in the United States. We could talk about that sometime else. And you get that money from the intellectual property that you've created for a set amount of time, and then it goes generic. Anybody can use it. That's actually the same with the designs that Apple is making with its iPhone and the various other proprietary things that it has. At some point, those will be available to be used on a kind of generic basis. So I'm not exactly sure what Epic's lawyer is getting at here, but he continues by saying Apple's position is that it's entitled to this 30% forever. Apple's commission scheme is that if you sell something on the App Store, it gets 30%. I don't think there's a temporal element, says Hit. It's not a comparison I draw. This isn't an intellectual property question. This is a transaction question. You've come to our storefront. We get 30%. Best Buy doesn't have a patent on shelving space. It's just a matter of you get the space. People see it because they come here to buy games, refrigerators, or whatever. You buy the game. I get a certain cut of it. Apple is arguing the same. You don't have to agree. A lot of you don't agree. I know from coming into my comments and mentioning how you don't agree. Apple's price was not set by supply and demand, right? Says Epic's lawyer. Just a desire, Apple said at the time, to support innovation. Not necessarily true, Hit says. It's a response to enhance the overall ecosystem. And this is kind of a crazy line of attack from lawyers uh, in my estimation here. And this is the kind of thing that you do see from lawyers, which is to say, okay, Apple plucked this number out of the sky. Now, there were other 30% numbers at the time that Apple used this. Generally speaking, physical brick and mortar retailers were at that number. Uh, But to suggest that supply and demand didn't set that number is somewhat crazy. Apple had an iPhone. Apple had an app store. Apple had relationship with developers. Developers could decide that that was too high or not too high. Consumers could decide that that price of the phone that's supporting that app store is high or not too high. And that's supply and demand. Yes, you ultimately have to set a number and see what happens. And if you think you can make more money on it through supply and demand, you might raise it. And if you think it's too expensive for people, you might lower it but it's all supply and demand. And the fact that they didn't change the number for whatever it is now, 12 or 13 years from that 30% baseline is not suggestive of we just plucked it out, but the fact that supply and demand and the market cost supports that number. Or as Hit says, it's a response to enhance the overall ecosystem. I think it's what the market will support. If people are buying it, if developers are investing in it, if there's huge amounts of apps that are on that ecosystem, then 30% seems like it's what the market will support. Number you can come into my comments and explain to me why that's not the case. But either way, it's an odd thing for a lawyer to say in open court that somehow this number was, I don't know, picked by dartboard. 
implication here is that Apple isn't being constrained by market forces, so there's nothing stopping it from arbitrarily raising and lowering prices. Now, that's an interesting side note as well. If there's nothing stopping it from arbitrarily raising prices, why haven't they? That's the question Epic has to answer, and the one that Epic's expert tried to answer unsuccessfully yesterday, which was, well, they fear getting sued or they fear regulation if they raise those prices. Why? Because they think that that would be an exertion of monopoly power. Maybe Apple thinks it would be an exertion of monopoly power in an untoward way, but that's the way the law is supposed to work. So there's nothing stopping it from arbitrarily raising and lowering prices, maybe, except that they haven't done that. And so Epic's case says, well, they could, and that could hurt us. But it also says the 30% right now is an illegal exertion of monopoly power, and that's a harder thing to prove. You assume Roblox is a game, correct? And I'm doing this for you all. Side note here. I have called it Roblox because I've read it forever, but a lot of you have come in and said, you're not interested in my legal analysis unless I change the pronunciation to Roblox, which is what everybody understands it to be. I'm willing to give that a shot for you all to make it a little bit easier on your ears, but I really expect some more upvotes, some more subscriptions, maybe a patron or two, because I'm going to really be going all out here to try to make sure that I pronounce your favorite game slash platform slash experience, depending on whether you're on Apple or Epic side, correctly. I don't assume I rely on classifications provided by developers. To recap, an Apple exec previously described Roblox as not a game and the experiences inside it as definitely not games. But Roblox uses the games category on iOS and Hit appears to describe it as a game. Trial is a real roller coaster ride for Roblox. To be clear, Roblox is totally uninvolved in this trial, but I increasingly wish it would come testify. Weirdly enough, they said it was classified as an app. Apple did, which as far as I can tell is not the case. Then you got articles on Roblox and all the rest. But Hit, I think, takes the right approach here, which says, I don't try to guess what a game is. If you've ever been to like a game developer school or these kinds of things, part of the early stage of learning is what is a game? Does it require challenge? Does it require things to overcome? Is a walking simulator a game? Is something like a open sandbox MMO where you just go and you live your life? Is that a game? Is it an experience? Is it a world? And Roblox sits in this place where you can have kind of conceptual games within it, but it's a platform, it's an engine for these experiences that don't have to be games. And ultimately, I really don't think the case is going to hinge on Roblox at all, but it's amusing to me how many times it's come up, just like it's amusing to Ms. Robertson here. Then you get into this cross-examination that is trying to undermine Hit's testimony. And we're not going to go into the details here. There's a good summary, as Ms. Robertson says here. See, I've got the row already triggered in my brain on why the word story example matters. And they're trying to undermine Evans and his uh, written testimony, his analysis, by looking at some games that he says appear on multiple platforms and saying that they don't, saying that they're different, and doing this in a couple of different places. Now we're looking up Candy Crush Saga as an example of a thing that supposedly is on the web. My understanding of it is that you can transact through a web browser, says Hit. Lawyer tries to click through King's website, but it inevitably directs people to apps on mobile or desktop. Is there not CandyCrush.com, Judge asks. Technically there is, but it redirects you to developer King's website. And yet you believe that your team managed to go into a website and buy legitimate Clash Royale money and go back to the app? That's your testimony, implying very heavily that he is lying. And yet, it appears that you can somehow play Candy Crush Saga and various things on King.com with these stickers. It's always a risk to try to do these examples in open court. But 
at some level, Hit is either lying about what he studied or that what his team studied, or he's not. And it's just difficult and frictionful to get to this area. Judge asks if Hit actually went through and tried to spend money in the games Epic was describing. It looked pretty difficult based on the examples they provided, she says. Do you have any logical explanation for why you couldn't get to it during your cross-examination? There were a number of other links on the page, Hit says, the research team would go through and they could find a way to do it. And then, as Ms. Robertson says here, this doesn't necessarily refute Epic's argument that most people don't have a research team to find the best payment method, but ultimately, it's not up to Apple to make it easy for people to give you money on your own website. There might be friction imposed on the browser side, as we said, but that ultimately can't be the deciding point for something like this. Yes, it's it's harder to go get money on the web browser. You can't suddenly win an antitrust lawsuit against Apple because you at Epic or Activision or wherever made it specifically hard to go and give you money on your browser. So that'll be an interesting thing to see if it gets settled up in documentation or with the judge's own examination of the facts here. It certainly was interesting as a ter- kind of cross-examination to suggest that Hit was lying about what his research team found. Very interesting from Epic, very aggressive, but certainly effective if it is in fact the case. Michael Craig is our next witness. He's an antitrust expert whose clients include, among many others, Gawker and Ozzy Osbourne. Here's Craig's written testimony. We're going to take a look at a little bit of it. He basically says Apple's off their rockers. They're crazy. They're not analyzing markets correctly. Specifically, he says a couple of these things. For both consumers and developers, game distribution through Windows-based PCs, game consoles like PlayStation, Xbox, and Nintendo Switch, and Apple Macs are not in the same market as game and app distribution for smartphone platforms like iOS. Games and other apps for these other platforms are not economically effective substitutes for iOS games and apps, and therefore stores for these other platforms are not substitutes for the distribution of iOS games and apps. The purchasing and usage patterns of these games and other apps show that they are most likely to be complements for iOS games and apps or have no effect on demand for iOS games and apps at all, i.e. neither complements nor substitutes, which for purposes of market definition excludes them from the relevant market. When it comes to distribution, iOS games do not have unique characteristics that make them separable from other iOS apps. All iOS apps, including iOS games, however, do have unique characteristics that make them separable from non-iOS apps, including non-iOS games. That's a remarkable statement, that Fortnite has unique characteristics that make its market separable from Xbox Fortnite, or maybe more specifically, Switch Fortnite, which he tries to drag in to this concept up here, and it's entirely separate from the iOS Fortnite. And that's interesting. And you start to get into Battle of the Experts stuff, right? Do you believe this guy? Do you believe Apple? What properly describes reality? What should the law do? And being a federal judge is no easy task. Or as Ms. Robertson says here and inspired the thumbnail, Apple and Epic's expert testimony is basically your market is too narrow and too broad or too broad and too narrow on top of the pointing Spider-Man gif. And that is, in fact, what was always going to happen. We mentioned this at the very top of this series, way back when we're talking about the actual lawsuit back here, that ultimately when you're talking about antitrust and you've got this big fight on what a relevant market is, it's going to be Apple trying to broaden it out. It's going to be Epic trying to narrow it. And their experts are going to shout at each other. And ultimately, the judge makes a decision. You never did an analysis of Switch in the mobile context, Judge asks. Craig says the crossover with mobile games and Switch was very limited. 
Nintendo doesn't, as a company, look to capitalize on mobile devices. Maybe I'm mishearing that from Craig. I feel like Pokemon Go would beg to differ here, not to mention their attempts with Mario Run and Fire Emblem and Dr. Mario. Now, Nintendo has announced that they're going to be backing off from mobile, but certainly they have tried to break into the mobile market in specific ways and found it to be more difficult than they had anticipated. Anyway, the nature of static games is different from a mobile device. This is the expert speaking. Since static games are more complex They take advantage of the fact that you have a bigger screen and different ways of interacting with the game. And as a result, those games provide a different experience. Lawyer is asking about the cost of making a static game. Craig says he has press reports that budgets for these games can be hundreds of millions of dollars. Now that's the rarity for games. You're talking about your Grand Theft Autos, your Red Dead Redemptions, maybe your Halos, and really, really big budget games. Mobile games cost hundreds of thousands of dollars or less, sometimes. Right. And this is experts talking about these kinds of things. But in general, mobile games can cost less, obviously. And successful mobile games, if you get kind of lucky in the lottery poll at the app store or wherever, can cost less. But the games that tend to jump out at the top are supported by the kings of the world and Activision and, you know, Crash Bandicoot as an intellectual property or what have you. They tend to have a lot of money spent on them to develop. And more importantly, a lot of money spent on them to market, user acquisition, eyeballs is where that money is spent. If you followed the NCAA March Madness basketball tournament, you saw maybe 600 commercials for Crash Bandicoot on the run on the App Store that Activision and King paid for. And they might've paid more for those ads than they did for actually developing the game. But to be successful in that market does require a lot of money. And this money doesn't really matter. In fact, as we talk about this particular bit of testimony, I think a lot of this is kind of, fuzzy, right? His suggestion here is that console games and mobile games are not substitutes because they present different experiences. And for the most part, they very much often do. There's a lot of overlap though, most specifically with things like Fortnite, which you can play on both and you can actually bring your character and account over. And if you're away, you can play Fortnite either on your Switch or on your phone. And when you're at home, you can play it on your Xbox or what have you. But the actual distinction there is not I think, a great definition for what a substitute is, right? If all the consoles in your house are being used and you're a gamer like me, I'll often go on and I will play something on my phone so I can sit with my family and we can play Pokemon Snap on the Switch or whatever together while I play something else. That's a substitute for my time. And yes, that increases the overall gaming in the house. And we'll see he uses that as an example of how mobile games and static games are not the same but it is a substitute for my brain space of wanting to play a game and I'm going to go play over here and that developer is potentially going to earn some money from me when I would have otherwise played something on the Xbox or the Switch or the PlayStation. So it becomes an interesting conversation. Lawyer is asking about the cost. We already talked about that. Console players are more engaged in their play with Fortnite and they spend more. So the play is being done in a way that isn't substitutable with mobile gaming. Now this is fascinating right? We already saw Apple's experts say most people aren't buying things on the iOS that play Fortnite. If they are buying something, a lot of them are buying it in a different location and very few of them are buying it either on the iOS or on the iOS and another location at the same time. Here, Epic's expert comes in and says they aren't substitutable markets. So we can claim that the Apple market is in and of itself relevant for this purpose to establish that Apple is a monopolist. They aren't substitutes for consoles, because players spend more money and are more engaged on consoles, which raises 
this very interesting question, as we talked about earlier in this video. Why is Epic bringing this case? Why is Epic bringing this case against iOS, breaking out into mobile? Well, we saw in the Project Liberty slides, it's because they want to break down the augmented reality costs, which are really functionally based on mobile technology, very similar to Niantic. So maybe they have a better case with that, but they can't bring it right now because they're not actually using it right now. And yet consoles charge 30%. Sony charges for cross-play features. They don't have any of the wallet protections that iOS has offered, at least not on the Sony and Switch sides. And now your own expert, if you're Epic, says that everything is more valuable in the console space. So not only is the open question, why are you fighting this fight and not that one? But we know the answer to that because you're partners with those console manufacturers and it would be very bad for your business if you did that. But also, why are you fighting this one in this way? When the judge comes out yesterday and says, why aren't you talking about essential facilities doctrine? And we talked about that and why it's probably not a winner at the end state. In order to claim something as an essential facility, you have to claim that it's the only way you can actually get money, that your company can survive, that it is so very, very important that you need to have access to it mandated by the courts. And then the next day, your expert comes up and says, well, mobile doesn't pay that much. Consoles are better. It just creates this giant schism between what the judge appears to be focused on, what your overall claim is, and all in an effort to make sure that your marketing, that your relevant market definition works for purposes of establishing Apple as a monopoly when you're already having trouble, if you're on Epic side, convincing or at least presenting convincing testimony to my ears that even if Apple is a monopoly, even if they are somehow susceptible to the rest of the antitrust claims because they are a monopoly, that they didn't change their rates, they didn't change their commission structure, and they only became illegal at some point where it's very difficult to determine and didn't use that monopoly pressure at all, as best we can tell, because of things that your own expert has said, like threats of litigation and regulation. So you've got an overall kind of weak case, and it's not always helped by your experts saying things like this. People play on a single platform for the most part, Craig says. Multi-platform gameplay just isn't enough to create a disciplining force on Apple's App Store policies. Well, doesn't that suggest that a Fortnite user from a consumer perspective, the user would use the same platform for some other game if they wanted a game, the judge says? Craig says that when you buy a new home console, you typically play less on an old console to compensate. In mobile console, they're additive. You end up playing more, not swapping one for the other. And he intends to mean that this makes them complements and not substitutes. For the static category of Switch, home console, and PC, when you introduce a new static device, you see a decline in play on the others. Again, not true on mobile versus static. And that could be a good point. There's a lot of documentation here that isn't represented by this plus and minus uh, chart. We just don't know because he also further goes on to effectively say uh, that mobile versus static doesn't change this kind of analysis. So when you add that phone, it's a it's a compliment. It's uh, it's hot dog buns to hot dogs, you see later in the testimony. And I could have put up some pictures of hot dogs in the thumbnail, I suppose, uh, rather than substitutes, which are what are used to establish what the relevant market is for antitrust purposes. Now we move to cross-examination of Craig. So this is Apple's attorneys talking about Craig. And the first thing they point out is that they don't love his curriculum vitae, his resume that he submitted to the court. As Ms. Robertson summarizes, what Apple has suggested means he didn't work for the Department of Justice on Sherman Act antitrust matters, which apparently was suggested in his resume. He instead worked on them 
He worked for the DOJ on different matters. And the lawyer is suggesting that there was a misleading resume suggesting this on the site. They discuss fixing the issue. Judge says, you'll do that today. Right. Craig says, yes, not really the biggest deal in the world. I do think if you go and you look at this highlight, what they actually wrote down was, I have assisted the U.S. Department of Justice and the IRS in developing economic and financial testimony in a variety of finance and tax litigation. Doesn't really imply that he only worked on antitrust for those kinds of things. So Apple's reaching a little bit, but you go and you try to impugn testimony the best you can. Hits analysis suggested that people swapped from iOS to Switch. Remember that chart? When Fortnite launched on it. Craig is looking at that next. Well, this is really a fairly rudimentary review of the numbers, Craig says. Craig ran his own analysis and came up with different numbers, says there was a different starting point in terms of how iOS players and non-iOS players spent time and money. And if you account for that, there isn't the kind of drop hit show. Now, they actually did show the different starting points in that chart. So again, you are left with these experts, Spider-Man pointing at each other, saying your analysis is rudimentary. No, yours is rudimentary. And you can expect more of that in tomorrow's testimony because David Evans, the economist that started this all off, kicked off the battle of experts, is coming back to talk about what Apple has presented and what he has heard in the rest of the case. Apple lawyer is talking about substitutability being a matter of degree. And he's talking about indirect network effects, basically a feedback loop that amplifies even small changes in how people engage with platforms. Brought up earlier this week. And this is one of Apple's theories that I don't think is particularly strong, but it's very interesting. It's novel, always like a novel argument that says basically, because you are going to be using the network effects against us, that people get locked in under our plan because there's so many users and views and eyeballs in our ecosystem, then those same network effects should be used to analyze whatever might be the negative ramifications of a price increase, right? There are different ways that you try to establish a relevant market. One of them is that you try to say, if Apple increased its prices, what would happen to their market? And we run analysis and it's all kind of, uh, you know, magic and smoke and mirrors and black box stuff. And that's fine. That's, that's how the law looks at these questions. And some of Epic's experts have said, well, Apple could raise its prices right now and there would be a very small reduction in developers and users in their ecosystem. And Apple gets in here and says, well, when we're talking about substitutes for our market, when we're talking about people leaving it, it's important to note that network effects are magnified on the downside and the upside. This is what they tried to bring yesterday. And I think it's interesting. I don't know that they have anybody actually opining on these things. Maybe they have an expert that's going to come up and talk about these things with more granularity. They mentioned it yesterday, uh, but certainly economists, depending on which side they are on, who's paying them, are going to say that this is a thing or this isn't a thing. So ultimately, the judge is going to come up and say, I think that's a useful argument or not. Now we're discussing core, mid-core, and casual games and asking if those are supposed to be sub-markets. Craig says, no, he's just trying to establish that mobile and console games are different and not substitutable because they favor specific styles. And here again, we get caught into an argument that I hadn't really expected here which is that games are not games. Games are different. Mobile games are different. Console games are different. And they're not substitutes. And they don't have to be perfect substitutes, right? One of the things that Craig's chart showed was that in general, a PlayStation and an Xbox are much stronger substitutes for each other than a PlayStation and even a Switch or a PC, but a PlayStation and a mobile device where he says they're compliments that all the gaming in the house goes up. And that might well be true. It doesn't take away from a certain amount of substitutability, uh, right? And certainly if you make the market as narrow as Epic wants it to be, which is just the iOS ecosystem, you've got other problems with the way that you interpret other things. Because if they are separate markets, 
Once again, you've kind of hardened into a, a, if we have a theory that says you control a market with control of your operating system, then we could get Xbox, we could get PlayStation, we can get Switch, we can get a lot of technology in trouble, which is one of the things that the court is trying to avoid. So it's interesting to me because I view it as games. If I want to play something, I look at what is available to me. And if I've got a phone, I'm going to play something on the phone. If I'm sitting in front of my Xbox, I'm going to play something in front of my Xbox. They're definitely substitutable, even if they're different. Like I'm not going to be playing Mass Effect on my phone. I'm going to be playing Crash Bandicoot or Match 3 or whatever. It's still games. That's what I'm looking to do. I'm looking to spend my time gaming. And I do think Epic is trying to draw entertainment hours too narrowly, right? The other thing I might do is I might watch Netflix, Um, And this is the kind of thing that we talked about earlier in this series where Netflix says our biggest competitor is Fortnite because it's not just movies or passive entertainment. It's what am I going to do right now? What am I going to do waiting in the restaurant? What am I going to do sitting on my couch? And the market for that is probably broader than what Epic's trying to describe it as in terms of reality. Whether or not the law sees it that way is an open question. Whether or not the judge sees it that way is an even more important one. You don't know if Google regards Google Play as a competitor to the App Store. Is that correct? And vice versa, lawyer asks. Same question with, say, Nintendo regarding the eShop as an App Store competitor. Craig says no to all. And again, you get expert witnesses under cross-examination. I'm not going to opine on things I don't know about. But certainly, as we've seen earlier in the series, Microsoft at some point thought Apple was a competitor. We see these kinds of references throughout at least a decade of these various companies circling around each other. And whether or not that should matter, that they think they're competitors and they might not be under charts and hypotheticals is, again, a question for the court to determine. I tend to think there's at least some credence to, hey, I think you're a competitor. I've said it in public. I'm a competitor. I make my decisions based on that. And I assume that users and customers make their decisions based on that, or I wouldn't say it, that that's got some level of import because these are the actual market participants and everybody else is just kind of looking at it from outside. Lawyer asks when Craig thinks Apple raised prices to a monopoly level. He doesn't really give a solid answer to this. And that's, again, where I think Apple has their best argument around Epic's theory as it stands right now towards the end of week two, which is Apple didn't change its rate. When did we become a monopoly abuser? And their expert can't answer it because it's impossible to answer. Then finally, we get what appears to have been a motion or a statement by, it sounds like Apple, to get something stricken because Craig isn't backing it up with proper documentation, to which the judge responds as follows. I frequently ask for what is the source material. Sometimes I get data. Sometimes I don't, Judge Rogers notes. So she says she will allow the testimony from Craig that's been objected to. I think it is better to have it on the record. And I think this actually can also go and be applied to what's happening with Lori Wright's testimony that you've seen Apple motion about, you've seen Epic respond to, we're expecting a Microsoft motion. And that's that it's all kind of not that terribly important when you've got a bench trial, when you've got a judge that, look, says here, I'm going to judge things, right? I'm going to look at what I've got and say, well, I've got a problem because this is anonymously sourced. I got a problem because this doesn't have source material. I'm going to evaluate the credibility of witnesses. I'm going to evaluate the strength of their positions. That's my job. And yes, you can send paperwork. You can make objections to tell me what you think I should pay attention to. But at the end of the day, just like, you know, Hogue in virtual legality saying, oh, anonymous sources, you got to look at tilt. I'm a federal judge. I am paid to judge things. I am paid to analyze whether or not there's a proper amount of sourcing or strength in someone's claims. So I'm going to leave it on the record. 
I'm not going to allow the objection, but I understand. I don't have source material for this. And I will take that into account when I'm evaluating all the various things I have to evaluate to put out this very important opinion. I think it's a totally fair response from Judge Rogers here. And that ends day nine of testimony. So more experts fighting at each other, more Spider-Men pointing at each other. We can expect more when David Evans takes the stand on day 10 And then we start to get into the back end of the trial. We start to get into Apple's more vociferous defenses, one would anticipate. We certainly are still anticipating Tim Cook's testimony to bookend Tim Sweeney's in the Battle of the Tims. And then we'll wind up waiting. It'll be a number of weeks in all likelihood before the court winds up putting out an opinion, which of course we'll analyze in this space. But before then, this has been day nine. If you enjoy these kinds of conversations, Epic versus Apple, please consider supporting the channel. We can't do it without folks like you. We've got a Patreon. We've got Streamlabs. We've got a store. And if none of those appeal to you or it's just not a good time economically, I 100% understand that. Just subscribe. Ring the bell. Give up votes, down votes, comments. Tell YouTube that we're here, that you like this content, and tell your friends. We don't have to go through YouTube. We can go through word of mouth. And every little bit helps, and I so, so appreciate it. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.